Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. The goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this simple discipline, and I looked up years down the road to see how God had used this habit to heal deep places in my heart and do incredible things in my life. And so over the years, it's really become my greatest passion to help others get to know Jesus through His Word and through His presence. Through this podcast, I'm hoping to help you see the Word of God with fresh eyes, to learn to slow down with your Bible, to fall in love with your Bible, and to form a relationship with Jesus. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful to have you here. Today, I'm going to do a Bible overview. This is something I have been wanting to do even before I ever did a podcast. I want to just give really a skeleton system for the overarching story of the Bible, the really, really nutshell version. And then in coming weeks, I'm going to go into it in a little bit more detail, break down the Old Testament and break down the New Testament. But I just feel that this overarching story is kind of going to help you understand different things as you read it and give you that grand zoomed out perspective of the Bible. I have wrestled a lot of intimidation for this episode. In fact, I'm on my second time recording. It's just one of those topics that I'm not really sure how to fit into a nutshell. How do you fit the Bible into a nutshell? It seems almost impossible, and I'm sure I'll leave something out, and I certainly hope I don't make it further confusing. But I do feel strongly to share this and I feel it on my heart. So without further ado, I'm just going to go through the very, very basics of the Bible in overview format. The Bible is ultimately the story of redemption. God has always existed in the expanse of eternity. Eternity has no start and no stop. There were created beings, angels, in heaven and eternity with God, and there was at some point a fall And one-third of the angels fell, being led by Lucifer, who was Satan. And this is the beginning of good and evil. We now have forces of dark, forces of light, forces of good and evil. And we see the Bible opens with Genesis 1-1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And God spends six days creating a perfect environment for his highest creation, humanity. He makes man first, and then he makes Eve. He makes man from dust, and he makes Eve from man's rib. And man is placed in a perfect, pristine, pure setting. No shame. They walk in perfect relationship and communion with God because they were made for relationship. Angels had been created to worship, but God creates man for relationship, which means he has to give him a choice. And so in this perfect paradise that man lived in, there was one thing that they could not have, which was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them, in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to surely die. And ultimately, we see that Satan is introduced into the story. He comes, Eve gets a little bit too close to the tree, and he says, has God surely said... And he questions the word of God, and Eve eats the fruit, and then Adam eats the fruit. And the fall occurs because man chose his way. 
And there is an instant separation from God. Adam and Eve now know shame. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. And we know this event as the fall. Because of their decision, God pronounces curses on the man, on the woman, on the land, and on the serpent. But even in the middle of this, God pronounces a promise. And we see that the first promise is in Genesis that there's going to come a redeemer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And from this point, we see that every person throughout all history is born as a sinner. And Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So every person that has come into the world is deserving of death just by our inherent nature. But again, there is a promise. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, and the plan for redemption was in the mind of God from the very beginning. We see that the Old Testament is full of types and shadows. We see that God slowly begins the process of revealing himself to humanity and begins to build a family that's going to become a nation from whom is going to ultimately come the Messiah. And God slowly and methodically sets the stage for the Messiah to come on the scene. He begins to work with Abraham and Moses and the judges and kings and all the while working with this nation that began with Abraham, the nation of Israel, which is the key player in the Old Testament. Ultimately, because they don't follow his laws, they go through this cyclical pattern of repentance, falling into complacency, walking away from God, or repentance, complacency, walking, or, uh, walking away from God. God ultimately allows them to go into exile into two different countries, Babylon and Assyria, yet he still continues to love them and work with them. And when the Old Testament closes historically, there is a 400 period of silence where we see no written scripture, but there's still things happening behind the scenes. The Romans and the Greeks basically construct an infrastructure for the spread of the gospel once the Messiah has come and paid the price for sin. And so Jesus comes on the scene, Emmanuel, God with us. We see this in Matthew chapter 1. We see this in Luke chapter 1 and 2. It tells us in the word that when the fullness of time, at the appointed time, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was humanity and divinity mingled. And he didn't come with pomp or with royalty, but he took the humble form of a baby. He began in the womb. He grew for 30 years. He stepped into a three-year ministry, and he trained 12 men to establish the church. He prophesied to them about the coming of the Holy Ghost after his death and his ascension. And in Jesus' life, over 400 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. He finally comes to the purpose of his mission— He goes to Calvary. He lays down his life. He had a body to be the ultimate sacrifice, and he paid the ultimate price for redemption, which was his own blood. The Bible tells us that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And remember, way back to the garden, that blood was shed. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement was put in place, and he came to take our penalty He came to take the punishment that we deserve, and he tasted death so that eternal life could be possible. 
he was my substitute. He was our substitute. So he died and he was buried, but the story does not end there. He rose victorious over death, over hell, over the grave, and he won final victory for all. And this is officially where the New Testament begins. The Bible says that it's the death of the testator that institutes the New Testament or the New Covenant. After his resurrection, he's seen alive for 40 days before ascending. He's seen by many and proven by many infallible proofs. And just before he's going to ascend into heaven, he tells the disciples to go wait in Jerusalem for the promise. He said, you've heard it from me. The disciples, 120 of them, go to an upper room in Jerusalem. They tarry, they pray, and the Holy Ghost is poured out. And there's a great crowd there in the city that day. They hear them speaking in languages that these people should not know. And they say, what is going on? And Peter gets up and he says, This is that which was prophesied way back in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel. And he preaches to them Jesus. And then he says, and they're pricked in their heart. They ask what to do to be saved. And he says this to them in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But he goes on and he says, for the promises to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call So the promise of the Holy Ghost is for everybody. In repentance, we turn from our sins. We turn from doing things our way and surrender and say, God, I'm going to do things your way. In the waters of baptism, our sins are remitted and the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our lives. And when we receive the Holy Ghost, that dead part of our spirit that died in the fall is resurrected. And it is going to be the spirit of God in us that's going to resurrect us when Jesus returns for his church And so we see that Acts is the only history book of the New Testament, and it's where we see his disciples, Jesus' disciples, carry out his commands and his wishes. Those that had walked with him daily for three years are now living out this new faith in the church age, which was the plan of God from the beginning. It wasn't just the Israelites anymore. It wasn't just the Jewish nation anymore, but the Gentiles whosoever will may come. It is opened up to everybody, and we see them establish a church in Acts. The epistles, the rest of the New Testament, are letters written to the churches established in the book of Acts. They're instructions on Christian living. They don't give us instructions on how to be saved, but they tell those who were already saved how to live. And then the New Testament closes with the book of Revelation, which is a book of prophecy about the events of the end time. And there's many interpretations of people who understand revelations different ways, but ultimately we know that Jesus is coming back for his church. His word says he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing for those who have followed his plan of salvation, who are covered by his blood. And he tells us to live ready for his return, that he could return at any time and we're not to be fearful, we're to be alert and looking for him. And the great promise of his word is eternity in heaven and redemption. There's coming a day when he's going to redeem everything back to himself. Heaven is our final hope. There's no unrighteousness there. We are going to live with perfect communion with him, just as Adam and Eve had back in the garden. Perfect relationship. The tree of life is going to be restored. Shame is going to be erased. I love this line in Revelation that says, God himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Everything is going to be restored, and the story of the Bible can really be summed up by the fact that God made humanity for relationship.
man fell from relationship and God made a way to redeem humanity back to himself. The Bible is ultimately the story of redemption. So again, I'm sure I missed some really big stuff in there, but that's just a general skeletal system for the Word of God. I hope it will help you as you read the Bible. This is something that I certainly have just, I didn't understand in the beginning of my Bible study. And so sometimes when you understand that overarching story of the Bible, it makes the little stories of the Bible a little bit more clear and helps understand how they fit into that big picture I just said that there's a verse in Revelation that says God is going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. And I don't know what you're walking through right now. You might be in a great trial of some sort or another. But I just want to share a word of encouragement today with today's unedited entry. It's called He'll Bring You Through. He'll Bring You Through. The other day, as I was reading Deuteronomy 8 for a Bible study, something really stood out to me. Moses begins by saying, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Moses tells them very explicitly, God led you into the wilderness. He then continues on, Your raiment waxed not old upon you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. The clothes they came out of Egypt with lasted them forty years. And in spite of God leading them into 40 years of walking through a wilderness, their feet never swelled up. Since last Thursday, that verse has been milling about in the corridors of my mind. God sent them into trial, but sustained them through it. This verse merged with Isaiah 43, which I had read that morning. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fires, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. God had spoken to his people through Isaiah and said, I'm going to allow you to go through some very challenging and difficult circumstances, so challenging and difficult that they can only be compared to deep water, raging rivers, and hot fires. But these difficult environments will not destroy you or define you. You will go through them. And when you come out on the other side, you won't be the worse for wear. This in turn reminded me of Mark 6, 45 to 52, which I had just read several times. In this passage, Jesus has just finished feeding multitudes of 5,000 men. And the very next verse says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before unto Bethsaida. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them. As I read that this week, about the fourth watch of the night jumped out at me. Jesus sent them onto the sea. And it very specifically says that he saw them toiling in the storm 
but he didn't race out to them. From what I'm reading, the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Jesus did not run to their aid the second he observed the perilous conditions they were in. He allowed them to pass through the waters before going to them, talking to them, and causing the wind to cease. This in turn reminded me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who found themselves in a pressure situation. They have been taken from their homeland, made rulers in their new location, and now Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, has constructed an image of gold which everyone is supposed to bow to. The punishment for not bowing and worshiping the image is severe. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. As we learned in Sunday school, these three Hebrew children refuse to bow and in his fury, the king commands the furnace to be made seven times hotter than usual. So hot that the men who took the three of them to the furnace died getting close to the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. They went into the fire. But they didn't just go into the fire, they passed through the fire. Because the very next verse says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in great haste and spoke and said to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto him, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar calls them out of the fire. The the three Hebrew children walk out of the fire, and the princes, governors, captains, and king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose body the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. God didn't keep them from the fire, but he brought them through the fire, and they didn't even smell like smoke. This reminded me of Daniel in the lion's den. And by the way, this is sort of reminding me of if you give a mouse a cookie. The king errantly signed a decree that no one could pray to anyone but him. This was a trap set for Daniel by some peers because they knew the consistency of his prayer life and his devotion to God. When Daniel heard the law was signed, he did what he'd always done. He went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Daniel was caught red-handed breaking the new law. The, The king is greatly upset with himself when Daniel is brought to him to be punished as the law had been written that they should be thrown into a den of hungry lions. The king tries to change the law, but can't. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Upon these words, they brought a large stone and laid it upon the mouth of the den. It would seem Daniel's fate is sealed. But when the king goes to the lion's den after a sleepless night and calls to Daniel, Daniel's voice echoes back to him, O king, live forever. My God has sent an angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. The story continues on. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. Daniel went into but came through 
with that one tooth mark. The same could not be said for those who had set out to destroy him. The king commanded that they now be thrown into the lion's den, and the Bible says, and the lions had mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces before ever they came to the bottom of the den. Ouch. They never even touched the ground that Daniel had slept on the night before. There are other stories coming to mind to go along with this concept, but I won't flesh out all the details here. Jesus himself, God robed in flesh, went into and through. He didn't give himself an exemption. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and tasted death. And he was laid in a borrowed tomb, but the grave could not keep him because he was just passing through. And after coming through, he was glorified. We are better after we pass through. Job was better after he passed through his trial. The children of Israel got rid of their enemies when they passed through the Red Sea. Paul and Silas had converts when they went through midnight in prison. When we are walking with Jesus, we can rest assured there will be seasons where he walks us into trial, but if he walks us in, he'll walk us through and ultimately he'll walk us out. When thou passest through, Paul said you must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. And David said, when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Paul wrote, Peter wrote, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Why? That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith is going to go through trial, just like gold goes through fire, but it's never pointless. It proves it's actually gold, and it is better having come through fire. Trial tests our metal and betters us for having walked through it. Trial proves our faith. Circling all the way back to Deuteronomy 8, Moses is reminding the children of Israel not to forget God who led you through the great and terrible wilderness where there were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water, who brought you forth water out of the flint rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. He calls to mind that God led them into and preserved them through. They were fed in trial. They saw the miraculous in trial. Their shoes lasted 40 years and their feet never swelled. God kept them through the wilderness. If we're in, he'll bring us through and we'll always be better because of through. Psalm 136, 13 to 16 says, To him who divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And verse 16 says, To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know what you might be facing today, but I just wanted to remind you that God will bring you through. And maybe that's not going to be through in this lifetime. Maybe it's going to be through to heaven. I love the attitude of the three Hebrew children when they were facing that fiery furnace. They said, our God is well able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, but if not, we're still not going to bow. And that has to be our attitude. If God brings me through in the way that I'm anticipating, in the way that I'm hoping, amazing. And if God doesn't bring me through, 
the way that I think it should look like, I'm still going to worship him. I'm still going to be faithful and I'm going to make it to heaven. You're going to make it. He's going to bring you through. Thank you so much for joining me for this journey. I look forward to meeting up with you again next Friday. If you have questions or to download a typed or a handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit meganedited.com. For now, go grab your journal and your Bible. I look forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is unedited. This is for you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday.